Amen. Lord, that's our heart. You are all that we want, Lord. What else is there that this world has to offer that compares to you? Where else can we go to find the words of eternal life? Lord, I pray that as we go to your word right now, that you would be our teacher. Give each and every one of us ears to hear what your spirit would say to us this morning. We love you and we praise you. You're a great and awesome God. May man decrease, that your spirit would increase, that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Welcome again to Calvary Chapel. Again, if you didn't get a Bible earlier, you will need one. Amen? Amen. All right. Turn your Bibles to Galatians chapter 1. If you're new to Calvary Chapel, we just go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, right through the Bible. We just finished 2 Corinthians last week, looking at chapter 13. So we'll begin this morning in Galatians. Whenever I start a new book, and I want to encourage you to pray about coming on Wednesday nights, we'll be in Deuteronomy 31 this Wednesday. Um, Again, we go verse by verse of the Old Testament on Wednesday night. But whenever I start a new book, I am going to take a few minutes before we look into the text itself, just to give you some background and, again, to give you the context of Galatians, who wrote it, why it was written, how how does it apply to each of us today, and then we're going to spend the next probably seven or eight weeks, going verse by verse right through the book. Now the book of Galatians is an epistle. For those of you who've gone to the inductive Bible study class that I teach, an epistle is simply a letter, and, what it, and it's written in an exhortive form. So whenever you see a letter, it's written with a statement of purpose, a reason specific on why the author wrote it. It's to bring about an action. It's to encourage or to rebuke or to exhort the ones who receive it. It was written to a number of churches in the region of Galatia. Galatians was not a city, it was a region within which there were many cities, and there were many cities where Paul had, had uh, planted churches. Now, how did it get its name? Just real briefly, they were people who came from uh, a Gallic background or Gaelic background from Gaul and the area around France. They had all marched down into this area and they had settled there some 300 years earlier. They learned the Greek language while they were there, so they were part, had you know, assimilated in some ways, but were still totally unique from the Greeks that were around them. The place in southern Galatia was visited by Paul on his first missionary journey, and there were cities there that you'll recognize by the name of Antioch. Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. Antioch, as we're going to see and I'll refer to, was the first place where believers were called Christians. We also know it was Lystra where Paul was stoned to death, drug outside the city, left for dead. Then, at, then I believe at that point was when he was caught up in the vision that we saw in 2 Corinthians. And it was after seeing that vision of heaven that he went right back into Lystra and continued to preach the gospel with great boldness. So these are cities that were near and dear to the heart of Paul. In, second, in his second missionary journey, he had gone through the northern part of Galatia. And again, on his third missionary journey, he had gone through there as well. So these were cities that were near to his heart. These were places, again, much like Corinth, where he had planted churches. And then word was coming back that things were going on in the region of Galatia that gripped his heart. And so Paul then writes this letter. He wrote the letter sometime between 49 A.D., and 55 AD, either right around the time of the events of Acts 15 or Acts 18, we don't know for sure, but in either case, again, it always blows me away that I read these letters, and then I realize that like Paul's in Ephesus going through it, and he's writing a letter to the people in Galatia at the same time. 
Here he is, they're, they're crying out for his death. There's riots in the street, and he's like, what's happening? Sit down and take a note, right? And he sends a letter to them. This guy is the heart of a pastor to the utmost. And we can understand, again, who wrote the letter and approximately when it was written. But the most important question is, why did he have to write it? It's a letter that, again, the purpose of this letter applies to our lives today. Because the key point of this letter as he exhorts them, as provoking them to action, is things were going sideways in Galatia. The churches that were there, again, there was a problem that was arising that is still alive and well in the church today. And here's what it is. They were adding things to the gospel. They were saying the cross is not enough. You need the cross plus something else. Now, what was most prevalent were the Judaizers. Now, these were the ones who said, when all the Gentiles started getting saved, well, first of all, they were mad that they were getting saved. If you remember how the Gentiles started getting saved, that initially, in 33 AD, when Pentecost came, that most of the original believers, if not all of them, were Jews. But some time went by, and if you remember, God brought a vision to Peter in Acts chapter 10. And he brought this vision to him, and when the vision came, he rolled down a sheet with all the unclean animals, and he told Peter to rise, kill, and eat. Praise God for that. That's why we can barbecue tomorrow. Amen? So he said, rise, kill, and eat. One of my favorite chapters. And so, after telling him to rise, kill, and eat, he was letting him know, and he said, not so, Lord. I, how can I eat what's unclean? He said, what I have cleansed, let no man call unclean. At the same time, he worked on Cornelius' heart in Caesarea. And sent him out, sent men out to go get Peter to bring him back the gospel. And we know that what happened was Gentile Pentecost. The Gentiles finally got, you know, now they've been, the Holy Spirit's been poured out upon them. Now the Jews initially didn't like it. What do you mean you went and talked to Gentiles? They're dogs. We don't like those people. But now they're getting saved and it continued to happen. A persecution came and they said, well, what are we going to do with these Gentiles? Now the Judaizers said, well, if they're going to be Christians, they got to become Jews first. So we got to circumcise them, and they got to keep the law of Moses, and if they don't do all those things, then they can't become Christians. Well, these were the kind of people that were in the region of Galatia that were getting people in the church to start to believe that it wasn't enough. The cross wasn't sufficient. you got to have the cross plus something else. Don't we see that in the church today? We see it in the church today in many different ways. People saying things like, well, yeah, it's the cross of Christ, but you've got to be baptized in our baptismal as well, or you won't really be saved. You know, you've got to, along with the, the cross of Christ, there's also got to be, you know, you've got to do these good works, and you've got to knock on this many doors, and you've got to do these other things. And you know, it's the same thing that happened in Acts 15. It said, and certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the Again, the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. And these teachers, again, continued this to the point where people started to believe it. You know what, people today are walking around burdened because they don't understand the simplicity of the gospel. Make it real clear to you, Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. Now we must accept the cross of Christ, we must respond, but at the same time, it's not Jesus plus 47 other things that you must do to be saved. And aren't you glad? Aren't you so blessed and aren't you so glad? And maybe you're here today and you've grown up in a church that, ha that was very legalistic. You know, you must keep these certain rules, these certain rituals, these certain rites. Some say, again, we're the only true church. You've got to be baptized our certain way. Some say, and when this goes on the radio, I'm going to have to look for a new building. But some say, you have to worship on Saturday. And if you don't worship on Saturday, that you've taken the mark of the beast and that you're not going to heaven. 
uh, hello, that's not in the Bible. And what happens is people start to believe it. Oh, yeah, so that's the case. we got to meet on Saturday. And if we don't meet on Saturday and we don't keep these rules, there's some people that say your diet has to be a certain way or you won't be saved or you have to dress a certain way. I remember a church in Southern California that, that was near our church, and there were so many rules and regulations. And you know the funny part is that as I think about these things, it reminds me a lot of how I grew up. There's others who say there's numerous steps to salvation. Baptism, confirmation, first communion. You better have last rites, and then when you die, someone's got to pray you out of purgatory. Guess what? Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. Amen? Now again, sometimes people say, well, Pastor Dave, why you got to be capping on the Catholics? Or I'm not. If you got a Catholic background, God bless you. That's half our church. Amen? Praise the Lord. But here's the thing. We're not saved through the Catholic Church or through Calvary Chapel. We're saved through Jesus Christ. And that's where our salvation comes from. And so it's so important that we don't start laying things on top of the cross. That's what's happening in the Galatian church. Now, just by way of personal testimony quickly, and then we will get into the text, I promise. Some will even point, again, to such mundane things as dress codes. And it reminds me of when I was a little boy, and this will show you how old I am, in the late 60s. Yes, there were 60s, okay? In the late 60s and early 70s, for the most part, Christians back then were people who had short hair and wore a suit and tie to church on Sunday, including me. I had the butch cut and the little suit and go to church, right? Get out your little suit. And if you didn't have your suit on, you couldn't go to church. Now, my dad was the pastor. And and again, I want to make it real clear that God was doing a work there. But at the same time, I always grew up in church that, you know, hey, that's, that's how church is you got to have short hair, and you got to have your suit on. And if women wore makeup, that was of the devil. My dad got in trouble one time because my sister and I were playing go fish because playing cards are used for gambling. And you shouldn't have playing cards. Get over it already, right? I mean, that's legalism, amen? It's legalism, and it's putting things upon people that don't belong there. But not everybody was wearing suits and ties on Sundays in the 60s. Because what happened was there was a hippie movement in the 60s and a whole generation of kids had stopped wearing suits and ties and let their hair grow long. And when some of these people got saved, a lot of churches said, well, you're saved now, cut your hair. You better cut your hair, you can't come in here. And you better wear some nicer clothes than that. And what are those flip-flops on your feet? That's not going to work. And so what happened was the hippies were, were not, didn't have a place to go to church. They're getting saved. How sad is that? And praise God for a middle-aged bald guy wearing Hawaiian shirts in Costa Mesa who said, come on over here. And he started having a burden for the hippies. He started reaching out to the hippies. And, he, you know, and what happened was the thing called the Jesus Movement. And literally tens of thousands of people got saved. And what was incredible was right about that time, we had moved to Orange County. I was, it was the summer between my fourth and fifth grade year, so I guess I was around nine years old. And one, one Friday night, now you got to understand, and I, I want to make it real clear, I got saved in the Baptist church, so praise God for the Baptist church. I got saved there, they teach the word, praise God. But I have to tell you something, I had never heard music if an organ didn't play it. And the guy was up front doing, which I never understood this, I don't under, you know what I'm talking about, right, bringing in the sheep, right, and that was it. We go to this Friday night concert, and I'll never forget it. We pull in the parking lot, and we, I felt like I must have been at Anaheim Stadium or something because we parked like four miles from the place, seemingly, as a 10-year-old because there were so many cars there. 
And I got out of the car and I realized something's different. I got out and I'm like, man, these guys are dressed pretty casual for church. I remember one guy was walking next to me barefooted. He had Levi cutoffs on, barefoot in a tank top. Long hair, carrying his Bible. I was like, whoa, this ain't the Baptist church. And, <laughs> and so we walk in, and again, don't get me wrong, praise God for the Baptist church, all right? But I will never forget, we, get, we walk inside, and the place is packed with young people, old people, people of all ages, and I'm sitting there, and I remember it took us a long time to get a place to sit, and then we sat down, and there were people sitting on the floor. Now, the ushers would be after you if you sat on the floor. They're sitting on the floor, and a lot of them with no shoes on, dirty feet, sitting on the floor. I remember one time that when they first moved into their building, someone said, you know, all these guys are sitting on the floor with dirty feet and getting the carpet dirty, and Chuck said, well, we'll take care of that, rip the carpet out. And that ought to be the attitude of the church, Amen. Man looks on the outward appearance, and God looks on the heart. But I'll never forget sitting down, and out came this band, band. Where's the organ, right? Out came this band called Mustard Seed Faith. And they just, and all of a sudden, boom, I was like, whoa, what is this? And I'm like, this is awesome, but I bet my mom and dad are mad. I looked at my parents, and my dad's like, you know, I'm like, this is good. Praise the Lord. So the band starts playing, and, and I'm thinking, man, this is incredible. And most, again, we refer to this as devil music. That's devil music. Got drums up there, it's devil music. You know what? If they're praising God, it's God music. Amen. Amen? If God's being glorified, that's all that's about. By the way, they didn't have organs in the Bible. Amen? I've got to play the organ. That's so God. What? Where's the organ in the Bible? They're playing stringed instruments in the Bible. Amen? A lot more like a guitar than an organ. And so I'll never forget it. And they started singing this music, and I'm like, whoa. And then all these young people are standing up, and they're arm in arm, and they're worshiping the Lord like I'd never seen people worship before, because you weren't, like, supposed to be excited when you worshiped. You weren't, like, supposed to raise your hands or anything. And they're all worshiping, and I'm just sitting there going, whoa. I remember being 10 years old, blown away. Wow, this is incredible. I even remember some of the lyrics of, of some of the songs that night, one of the songs was, I'm so happy in Jesus and the life he gave to me. He makes me feel like a bird on its wings or a sailboat out to sea. And you've got to love the internet, because I went on it last night and they have that song on the internet. And I listened to it and I was, I have to confess, weeping. But you know what? Legalism would say you can't do that. Legalism would say you have to do things our way. You can't just preach the gospel and love people you got to have a bunch of other rules, or you're not really a church. Many people, while tens of thousands were getting saved, were having a problem with Pastor Chuck, and a problem with the hippie movement. Another lyrics from a song, I wrote them down, I don't know why I remember this, but I do, and I don't even know who sang it. But it was long hair, short hair, some coats and ties, people finally coming around. Looking past the hair and straight into the eyes, people finally coming around and it's very plain to see it's not the way it used to be and i'll remember just love i mean i i have to confess to you we started going there shortly after that i went to school there for fifth grade and you know what i just started i was like wow even as a 10 year old i saw the difference again the, the, the church i was going to was great they loved god but you know what god was moving at calvary chapel god was doing a great and you know what out of that church have been blossomed several thousand churches, including this one. 
And you know what he did? What I remember is I remember sitting down. I remember this guy sitting down next to me on the floor. He had dirty feet and he had these, they had these leather covers they put on their Bibles that snapped. And he had this Bible and he opened it up when Pastor Chuck started to teach and the thing was so worn out it was falling apart. And I thought, wow. And he had written all over his Bible. I didn't know you could write on your Bible. I thought you'd get in trouble. Well, look, he wrote it in his Bible. And I just thought, man, what a difference. But the sad part is that if we get caught up in legalism, we get caught up, we'll start to say, oh, you know, it has to be done this way. You know what I mean? And we'll start adding to the gospel, and we'll start saying, you've got to have short hair. Can you imagine, Patrick, you've got to have short hair, you can't come in here. Forget about the short hair. You can have purple hair. I don't care, right? Amen? And I'll tell you, when I was a youth pastor, that was my heart. Guys, if they come, I don't care. What? Mounts in the outer appearance, God looks on the heart. Love them. Share the love of God with them. In Galatia, they were adding to the gospel. Oh, you can't be saved unless you're circumcised. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. What? I prayed a prayer. I doubt that was it. No, come over here. That's a big deal. No thanks. You know, 30 years ago, it was, again, some, like I said, things haven't changed. The same issue in Galatia 2,000 years ago, the issue in Orange County 30 years ago, is the same thing again that's happening even today. And that their, their whole message was, you must become a Jew before you can become a Christian. You must get your life cleaned up. You must be baptized in our church. You must live the way we want you to. You must dress like we do, or you can't be saved. Well, let me tell you right now, I want to make it very, very clear that you can come to church dressed here any way you want. Just cover yourself up. <laughs> but you can come here any way you want, amen? Because man looks on the outward appearance and God looks on the heart. And it's all about Jesus Christ being glorified. And the point isn't whether or not the gospel... Ne- Here's the point. The point is not which rules and rituals do we need to keep. The, r- the point is, do we need to add anything to the gospel? The answer is no. The short answer is no. The long answer is the book of Galatians. And that's what we're going to be looking at. The long answer is, as we go through these six chapters, he's going to be very clearly coming after the Judaizers. And we're going to see the tone in Galatians is different than any other letter that Paul wrote. You know, most we'll see it this morning. Most of the time when Paul writes a letter, he starts off with a lot of, oh, the saints greet you, and how you doing, and, right? Greet so-and-so, and greet so-and-so. Not in this book. Bam! Why? Because Paul is vehement about what's going on. You start adding to the gospel, we got a problem. And you know what? People start adding to the gospel today, we should not be sitting by and not saying something about it. Amen? When people say, oh, you got to do no, you don't. No, you don't. It's Jesus Christ. And again, he's going to talk about justification by faith, not by works. And just as these false teachers are influencing the believers in Galatia to trade their freedom in Christ for bondage, so today many are doing the same. I know people who used to walk around with a great amount of joy. They've gotten involved in a church somewhere where they've been throwing burdens on top of them and they don't have joy anymore. Fruit of the Holy Spirit, as we'll see in Galatians 5, is love and joy. And that should be just glowing out of us. Amen? That's one thing I noticed about those long-haired guys and gals. They had joy like nobody had ever seen in my life. They loved church. Loved it. In the parking lot, skipping to go in. I mean, literally. 
And I'm like, man. And you know, I felt like half of the, and again, I'm not capping, but it's going to come out that way. Anyway. Half the time, I felt like I was going to a funeral. Oh, time for church. Oh, I got to go now. Play the organ. Yeah, that's a lot like a funeral. Right? Instead, and again, God bless them. That's great. If that's how you worship, praise God. If you worship with a mouth harp, God bless you. I mean, worship however you want, right? But the point is that we need to understand that God works in many different ways, but what we do not compromise is the truth of the gospel. That could never be watered down, added to, changed in any way, period. And this is Paul's message, and this is Paul's heart, and I know that was a lengthy introduction, but I wanted to give you a, just, a, again, a taste of the context of Galatians. This is Paul's heart, writing back to these churches that he had such a burden and an incredible love for it. So over the next few weeks, here's the three things we're going to see. In chapters 1 and 2, we're going to see the gospel of grace being defended. Paul's going to have to defend his own apostleship again. Have you noticed that keeps happening? Because every time you preach the word of God with boldness, the people who don't like it attack you. And so Paul preaches with boldness, they come after Paul every time. Paul's used to it, it's okay. Chapters 3 and 4, we're going to see the gospel of grace explained. He's going to clearly teach them the principle of justification by faith, and at the same time refute the false teaching of justification by the law. It's justification by faith, not works. It's justification by faith, not the law. The law can't save you. Cannot save you. Now some people will say, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. But the law is in the Bible for a reason. Yeah, it is, to show you you're a sinner. Amen? Now, we should walk in obedience. But obedience doesn't save us. Salvation produces obedience. And that's the key issue. Now, one last thing before we look at the text. You know, there's another man that was greatly impacted by this book. His name was Martin Luther. He was the the founder of the Protestant movement. Martin Luther was a monk of all monks. He was climbing on his knees uh, up the steps to please God, saying his prayers, when God brought a verse to his mind. Galatians 3.11 No man is justified by the law in the sight of God, for the just shall live by by faith. And he was gripped, and, he, and the Protestant Reformation was born. Why? Because he understood for the first time, I don't have to crawl on my knees upstairs to prove to God that I love him. I don't have to keep all these rules and rites and rituals. I don't have to torment myself so that I can show God that I love him. I don't have to do that. The just shall live by faith, not by the law, not by works. And again, people say, well, that's cheap grace. I want to make it real clear. We'll talk about this when we get to chapters 5 and 6. Liberty is not licensed to sin. Amen? You know what? I don't, how many of you love rules? You know, when you see something that says, don't touch, what do you want to do? Wet paint. I wonder if it really, right? <laughs> Keep your feet off the grass. <laughs> Why? Because rules just, you know... That's the way we are. Sinners, right? That's what we do. But you know what? As you fall in love with the Lord and it's done out of love, not out of law, I don't want to touch the wet paint. I don't want to put my feet on the grass. I don't want to walk in sin because I love God so much that I don't want to do anything that's going to break fellowship with Him. And I'm not doing it so He'll love me. I'm doing it because I love Him and because He first loved me. Amen? And that's the difference. It's out of love, not out of law. It's out of a a passion for God. And so we'll see, lastly, the gospel of grace applied. 
And again, the power of that liberty. And that liberty is not licensed. So let's begin in verse 1. And again, we're going to look now. And I titled the message this morning. We're going to just look at the first nine verses, if we have time. Another gospel. And so I titled the message. In a time when our politically correct society says it's narrow-minded or even bigoted to reject another person's belief system as not being as valid as yours. I had a guy in the plane tell me that. So you're saying you're right and I'm wrong. I said, no, what I'm saying is the Bible's right and Hinduism is wrong. Well, I believe Hinduism, I'm a Hindu. I said, well, okay. You can believe two plus two is five. Still be wrong. Amen? That's narrow and bigoted. And you, you think, I said, wait a minute. Jesus is a risen and living Savior. You've got 30 million gods and they're all dead. Every one of them. Have you ever talked to one of them gods? You can't, because they're dead. And it's very, and it's very from their point, it's very narrow-minded. Now, always do it in love. Hey, Jesus loves you, man. He suffered and died. You might have eternal life. You've only got one God. I've got 30 million. I've got one living and risen Savior, and you've got 30 million blocks of wood. When it gets right down to it, amen? And to speak in absolutes, to reject another person's interpretation, again, that comes across from the world's perspective like, oh, you're so narrow. And these Judaizers, false teachers like anyone else who doesn't like the message, are going to try to discredit Paul because he's speaking in absolutes. They're going to portray themselves as a spiritual one. They're going to say, look at our good works. Paul doesn't do half as much as we do. Look, at we're so legalistic. Now, can I encourage you something? Sometimes we think the most spiritual people are the one with the most rules. Isn't that how we equate it? Well, that guy must be really spiritual. He won't even drive his car on Sunday. He'll only walk. You know what I mean? And we think, ooh, spiritual. You know what the Bible says? Weak brother. Weaker brother. Why? Because he's bound up in legalism. He's bound up in the law trying to please God. Now again, God's going to convict us of things and we need to obey that, amen? But at the same time, we need to be caught up and bound up in all of these laws. And Paul's going to address these accusations of them coming and saying, you know, Paul, you're into this liberty. You're not really serious about your faith. You water down the message. You're afraid of what the Gentiles are going to say so you don't tell them they have to be circumcised. I think I'd be afraid of what the Gentiles might say if I told them they had to be circumcised. I don't think, I, yeah, I don't think that's a message I'd want to deliver. But you know what? Paul wasn't afraid to deliver the message. Paul just said they don't need to be. We're not Jews or Gentiles anymore. We're neither slave nor free. We're Christians. We're followers of Christ. That's who we are. So, in Galatians 1, another gospel, the first thing he's going to do is address their false accusations. Then he's going to talk about the true source of grace. And then he's going to vehemently go after these false teachers. Let's begin in verse 1. Paul, an apostle. Now, understanding the context, they were all attacking Paul, saying he wasn't an apostle. They're all saying, oh, you're not really called. Who laid hands on you? You know, we've been elevated by men. Nobody elevated you, Paul. Who, yeah, who made you an apostle? That's a great question, isn't it? These guys, well, I got my friend. We laid hands on each other. Well, now we're all, you know, now we're all called. Well, Paul had strong words for these Galatians, and they must understand where his authority came from. So the first thing he lets them know right off the bat is that he indeed is an apostle. What is an apostle? It's one sent or commissioned by God. One, a messenger, is a literal translation. But men, especially those who didn't like the message, would question his authority. And so Paul's making it very clear that he's been called by God. Sent out by God. You know what? They questioned John the Baptist's authority when he was baptizing people. Who gave you the authority? When Jesus cleansed the temple, 
Who gave you authority? And they said the same thing to Paul. Now look what he says. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and, the God, and God the Father who raised him from the dead. I'm thinking that's better than having your hands laid on by some men. Amen? They were pretty round up. Hey, we got our hands laid on by men, and I got my you know, ordination certificate right here. Mailed off for it, right? And you, know, you can do that today, by the way. But you know what? Men don't ordain men. God does. All we do is recognize what God's already done. When we ordain somebody, it's not us saying, ooh, okay, we elevate you. We're saying God has already placed this calling upon your life, and we simply recognize it as being true. And that's exactly what Paul said. Now, they were laying hands on each other and elevating each other and convinced that people needed to become Jews before they become Christians. And all that Paul did was meet Jesus face to face. All that Paul did was ride on the road to Damascus on his way to persecute Christians, get knocked off his high horse or his high donkey or whatever he was riding, fell to the ground and was blinded. He ended up spending three years in the desert, and during that time he was studying and preparing himself, having one-on-one time with the Lord. And then he came back, and he wasn't raised up by men, he was raised up by God. And they're, they're saying, hey, look how elevated we are. Look where our calling has come from. You know what? Men don't ordain men. God does. We simply recognize it. And the Judaizers wanted to know who laid hands on you. And he's letting the Judaizers know. And he's letting the Galatians know. It was God. God Almighty is the one who called me. In this, it easily, again, Paul's most vehement and heated of all his epistles. Paul's going to introduce himself as the author, then immediately establishes authority and the source of his calling, again, the risen and living Savior. You know what, guys? Can I tell you something right now? As Christians, you have an incredible calling from God. Every single one of you. Go therefore into all the world and preach the gospel, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Who's called to do that? Every single one of us. You go in the grocery store, you're called. You're the salt and light of that place in your neighborhood and everywhere you go. And where did that authority come from? It came from the Lord. He's called you. He's gifted you. He's equipped you. Use those things for His glory. And all the brethren who are with me. Now again, I like this part. It just seems like a side note. Though Paul's calling came directly from Jesus, while men didn't call him, they recognized his calling. There were brethren that traveled with Paul. And they recognized Paul's calling. Now I get concerned when I meet somebody who starts telling me all about how called they are and they're off on their own somewhere. That's a red flag to me. The Bible says, forsake not the gathering yourselves together and all the more as the day approaches. Amen? And I meet too many people who call us on the phone or call from the radio program or maybe visit one time and want to confront you about, oh, their apostolic calling and they're this and they're that. And where's this at? Oh, I meet in my home. Who with? My wife. Who else? Nobody. Who else recognizes that you're called? Nobody yet. Dude, start serving somewhere. Amen? Why don't you come early and set up chairs? Let's get a servant's heart. And instead what happens is it's a red flag when nobody, when you're on the, you know, the Lone Ranger. Christianity is not for the Lone Ranger, amen? Christianity is not for you to be off on your own. And Paul's traveling with his brethren, people that recognized his calling. God called him, but there were men who recognized it. And they traveled with him. He says, to the churches of Galatia. Again, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derbe, Tavia, several others. 
And he's writing this letter to all of these churches. Why? Because the same problem's going on in all of them. They're adding to the gospel. Jesus alone is not enough. And he's saying, you know what, guys? We need to get it right back where it belongs. Verses 3 through 5. Now, we're going to see a clear reminder of the true source of grace. That it's not the law. That it's not man's efforts. Look what he says in verses 3 through 5. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he does have a much shorter greeting than usual, but this is his common greeting, grace and peace. The word grace there is keros, and it's a Greek word, and the word peace there is shalom. It's a Hebrew word. And he would always greet people with the Greek word and the Hebrew word, grace and peace, grace and peace. Whenever you see Paul greet somebody, it's grace and peace. The word for grace also means beauty. Because you know what? There's a great amount of beauty in the grace of God. Amen? And whenever he would greet them, he never says peace and grace. He always says grace and peace. Why? Because without God's grace, we can have no peace. The grace must come first. By the grace of God, we can have peace with God. Amen? By the grace of God, we can know the Prince of Peace. And we can walk in intimate fellowship with Him. And again... I love just Paul's heart reaching out to all people. Now, it's interesting that the word grace is used by Paul over 100 times in his letters. All the other New Testament writers combined use it 55 times. Paul truly is the messenger of grace. Often you think of Paul as being the guy who brings the heat, which he does, but he brings grace, amen? He wants to see people saved. And, he, and he, again, he uses that term almost twice as much as all the rest of the New Testament writers combined. And again, praise God for His grace. And look what he says. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for our sins. Now, the word for there is, in the original language, in behalf of or for the sake of. He gave Himself for our sins. Now, what were they being taught? You must... Fulfill the law for your sins. You must keep the rituals for your sins. You must have your first Holy Communion for your sins. You must have your last rites to have your sins taken care of. You must be prayed out of purgatory. Whatever, that you must be baptized in our baptismal. You must keep our rules and rituals. And what does he say right off the bat to them? Going straight to the point, who gave himself for our sins. Jesus Christ paid the price completely. Amen? Last words on the cross. To Talestai. It is finished. Amen? It's finished. It's done. That's it. It's over. I paid it. All of it. And the word there, to Talestai, was the same word they would use when someone had a huge debt and they paid it off. They would stamp on the receipt, to Talestai, paid in full, redeemed. And praise God. That's what Jesus did. And he says here to them, who gave himself for us on our behalf for our sake he paid the price now why did he do it look what he says in the rest of this verse that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of god of our god and father now that he might deliver us from the evil of this present age The cross of Christ not only justifies us from our sin, but it sets us apart from the world. It's not just the get out of hell free card. Praise God that it is, amen? But it's not just the get out of hell free card. 
It's not just a deliverance in the promise of heaven, but it separates from us from the world here and now. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. We've been delivered from it. We don't have to be overwhelmed by it. And so this is his heart to say, look, he gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. The Judaizers wanted to add works. Salvation and separation both by the grace of God. Both salvation for eternity and separation here and now. And the Judaizers instead wanted to say, you know what, you've got to add your works to the gospel. When you add works, you lose grace. If you add works, you lose grace. Grace and works cannot coexist. Now, fruit of salvation, amen to that. If you want to use that word for works, that's fine. It's not faith plus works or faith or works, it's faith that works, amen? And so in those cases, praise God. But the point here again is that God paid the price for us to separate us and deliver us from the evil, not to burden us. He didn't say, okay, now you're saved, now I got 500, here you go, put the burden on your back. And, and it's so sad to see people walking around in heavy robes and, and right, you know, the wheelbarrow full of rules with heaven at the end. Oh, yeah, I got about heaven at the end, though, right? Aren't you glad that's not Christianity? And if that's what you think it is, can I introduce you to the, to the Savior? You need to know Him. Because you, who, He who the Son sets free is free indeed. And He's saying very clearly here, He's delivered us from this present evil age, according to the will of our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And again, the deliverance was according to the will of God, not based on our good works, delivered by our sovereign God, our loving Father, and this world, again, who's it governed by? Satan. But God has both delivered us in the world, and one day He will deliver us from the world. And again, all for His glory. Why did He deliver us? Look what it says in that verse. To whom, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. You know what? When you realize what God has done for you, shouldn't it make you want to glorify Him all the more? You know, can I say something? Again, just your pastor's heart. I get concerned when I see that I would love to see us as a church worship more. And you know what? I believe that the more we fall in love with Jesus, the more that our worship will be touched. Amen? You worship because you love Him. Amen? And don't worship because you feel like you have to. Oh, they're raising their hands. It's my turn. Don't do that. But I want you to do this. I want you to come with a heart to say, Lord, I'm going to focus on you right now. Lord, I'm going to give you all that I have. And I'll tell you what, sometimes I worship I'm to the point I just, I'm weeping and I can't, I can't hardly stand. Now again, it's not just emotionalism, but you know what it is? It's the realization of what God has done for us. What a great God. Is He worthy to be worshipped, to be praised, and to be honored? And He's worthy if He never does anything else for us ever again, just alone on what He's already done for us. Amen? And so, here's the heart. To Him be the glory forever and ever. He's the one who suffered. He, he Himself paid the price. Let Him be glorified. Instead, what happened? The Judaizers would walk around, look at all the stuff we do for God. Do a lot of stuff for God. Check it out, right? And we want to have a godly resume. I'll tell you what. One thing that did happen back in D.C., I went back there recently, some of you know. And they introduced some of these guys. I wanted to throw up at the introductions. Because one guy's introduction... And I happen to know it because I have it on CD, and I let, it was seven minutes. I was like, dude, sit down already. I mean, seven minutes, and he's the greatest guy that ever, right? Touch not the glory, amen? It ought to be, here comes a humble servant saved by grace. Amen? 
To God alone be all the glory. And that's the point here. The Judaizers were very proud of themselves. Look at all we've done for God. Look at our great accomplishments. God is so blessed that I'm on His side. He's so fortunate. And you know, we need to be careful, guys. Sometimes we'll say, wouldn't it be great to see what God could do with that person? Like, God needs our help. They need God's help. Amen? Man, what would happen if such and such an actor got saved? You know what? God's greater than whoever that person is. Amen? And they need the Lord. We don't, the Lord doesn't need them. Now, He desires that they be saved. Now, lastly, watch Him go after the false gospel here. This is, the Apostle Paul is not messing around. This is a very short, abbreviated introduction, and here we go. Here it comes. Look at verse 6. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from Him who called you into the grace of Christ to a different gospel. This is the statement of purpose of the entire book. He's blown away that they've turned away to a different gospel so soon. We don't know the exact amount of time, but it's only been a few years since Paul was there. The church was started. They were thriving and growing and blessed. And a short amount of time later, they're already being caught up in another gospel. And Paul's marveling and blown away. What in the world is up with you guys? The grace of God. How can you turn away from the grace of God to anything else? How can we turn away from the grace of God to anything else? What else is there that can compare to the grace and the mercy and the love of God. From the grace of God to the wisdom of men. I've had people challenge, just recently, people say to me, well, Pastor Dave, I think sometimes you take the Bible too literally. You bet. You bet. You believe in a literal seven days creation. You better believe I do. Why? Because the Bible says so. Well, science, scientists are wrong. How about that? We're not on the opposite side. The Bible is omniscience. God is omniscience. Amen? He's all-knowing. And the scientists keep changing their mind. The Bible's the same yesterday, today, and forever. As God's Word is. Amen? That's who Jesus is. And yes, I take it literally. And I don't apologize for it. We shouldn't. Amen? The scientists are going to learn a lot. They just read the Bible. They thought the world was flat when the Bible said it was round. Hello? Scientists, but they say it's flat. Well, they're wrong. And they're still wrong. Amen? And they keep changing their mind. It cracks me up. The world is... Six to eight billion years old, give or take two billion. Well, that's pretty, that's pretty succinct, isn't it? No, it's not. Yes, I do literally believe that the world is six or seven thousand years old. Yes, I do. Why? God said so. It's enough for me. Amen? And it's not foolishness. It's not believing in spite of the evidence. That would be, you know, that would be foolishness. It's not what it is. It's the Bible. I trust the Word of God. It's always right. And so we see here that they've got caught up in a different gospel, the wisdom of men. Oh, but you've got to do this. Really? If you really want to know God, you've got to add this to the gospel. Really? What else do I have to do? Well, you have to be circumcised. Really? Yeah. Look in the Old Testament. Look what it says. You've got to be... Oh, okay. Well, now you also got to keep these rules and the law of Moses. And you can't travel more than this many feet on the Sabbath. And you better take your wooden teeth out on the Sabbath because then you'd be carrying a weight. And don't wash anything and don't cook on the Sabbath. Man, I'd be hating the Sabbath supposed to be a day of rest. I'd be petrified I was going to make a mistake. You'd have to take off your wooden leg on the Sabbath because you'd be careful. You'd have a guy hopping around with no teeth, afraid to get wet because he'd be washing the floor. I mean, that's just wrong. It's not a day of rest. It's a day of bondage. But that's what happens when man gets involved in what God wants to do. Okay, you're saved. Now, guess what? Here it comes. You've got to do all this stuff. You know what? Fall in love with Jesus. 
Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Serve God with your whole heart and do what you want. Let me explain that real quick. That, you know why? Because your desires become His desires. You start wanting what He wants when you're in love with Him. You start to love God and hate sin when you have intimate fellowship with the Lord. And again, it's not a legal relationship with God, but it's a loving relationship with God. Not bound to God by law, but bound out of love. And again, praise God for His love and His grace. And He comes right to him and says, you've turned away to a different gospel. The word there for different can also be translated another. Now it's interesting that there's people out today with another testament to Jesus Christ. You seen that? There are no more testaments to Jesus Christ. Amen? And he's going to talk about that in verse 8. Again, you turn away to, from the grace of Christ to a different gospel. By the way, you can't have a different gospel. You know why? Because gospel means what? Good news. So you can't have a different gospel that's a false gospel. It's not the gospel. It's a lie. So there are no other gospels. There are lies. Amen? He's being very direct, and praise God that he was. Now he says, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. It's not another. It's not the gospel at all, because again, the gospel is good news and it's truth. Some who trouble you, these false teachers, try to pervert the gospel. How are they perverting it? They're changing it. Do we see that today? Again, some will get upset with me again, but it's okay. Mormonism is a cult. We need to pray for them. They need Jesus. Amen? But it's a cult. And they preach another gospel. And they preach another truth. And it is not the truth. Jehovah's Witnesses. Cult. And again, we love them, pray for them. But they preach that Jesus Christ was just Michael the Archangel and that He is not God. And that there is no heaven. And it's all works-based. You know what all the cults have in common? You work. You work your way to heaven. Here's the works things you've got to do to get to heaven. Every cult brings God down and deifies man and says man achieves it through man's efforts. You know what? We don't achieve it through our efforts. Christ achieved it on the cross. Amen? And so it's so important, and he's just making it very clear. Look, he's saying they pervert the gospel. And the word there for pervert means to distort until it's unrecognizable. And I've seen people do that with the gospel. It's not the gospel anymore. They've perverted it. They've destroyed it. The gospel of Christ. They destroy the good news of the cross by adding to it. Verse 8. You underline stuff in your Bible, you should underline this. But even if we or an angel named Moroni from heaven preach any other gospel to you than that which we preach to, to, to you, let him be accursed. How does God feel about other Gospels? The word there for accursed is anathema. Let him be anathema if he preaches another Gospel. I worked with a Mormon co-worker. He's talking about the Lord all the time. And one time I said to him, what are you trusting in for eternity? He said, my faith in Jesus Christ and my good standing in the Mormon church. I said, bro, you went one step too far. If you trusted only in Christ, you'd be right on. But your good standing in the Mormon church, you've added to the gospel. You've now said the cross of Christ is not enough. You've called Jesus a liar when he said it is finished. 
That's exactly what you've done. And you know what, guys? Again, my heart is not to cap on anybody, to attack anybody. It's not my heart. I want to see them saved. I want to see them know Christ. But I'll say this. I say it because I want you to know that when a Mormon knocks on your door, it's not like the Lutheran or the Baptist down the street who truly loves God. Amen? It's a cult. The New Age movement is not another path to God. Buddhism, not another path to God. Hinduism, not another path to God. Not another path to God. There are no other paths to God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. The word there, anathema, means excommunicated. The standard of all teaching is the word of God. He says, they preach to you another gospel, another truth, something contrary to the book that you have in your hand. Now, this is an exhortation to all of you. How are you going to know if they teach you something that's contrary to this? You must know this. Amen? I haven't said it in probably six months. I'm going to say it. Read the book. Don't wait for the movie. Amen? Because here's the point. The point is that we have to know this so we'll know when someone's teaching contrary to this. Someone comes up to me and starts saying, I'm like, and they'll, tell, and they'll even say this, it's in the Bible. It's in the Bible. And I'll say, no, it's not. Yes, it is. It's in the Bible. Okay, here's my, show me. It's not in the Bible, but they'll throw it out like it is. You've got to be careful. You've got to know the Bible so when someone teaches something contrary to the Bible, you know it's a lie. And you know what else? You fall in intimate fellowship with Almighty God, you're not going to want to serve any other false god. You're going to know the risen and living Savior. Amen? And so he's saying, let him be anathema. Let him be accursed. Let him be excommunicated. These false teachers who added to the law, this was not something to be taken lightly. So when somebody comes and says, yeah, Jesus, yeah, you're right, the gospel, you're right on, but you still need to do this. Anathema. Accursed. You're downplaying the cross. Now again, as Christians, should there be fruit? Yes. Should there be good works? Absolutely. But that's not what saves us. It's a result of our salvation. Last verse. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than that which we have received, let him be accursed. Another harsh warning for all the false teachers. Teaching a false gospel of works, adding to the gospel of grace, removes grace. When you add works, again, you remove grace. You've heard me say it before. Salvation is a free gift. If we had to work for it, it would be a paycheck. Amen? It's not based on what we've done, but what He's done. These these false teachers, excuse me, these false teachers are not to be tolerated or entertained. Period. I want to encourage you. You pray before you let a Mormon in your house. I'm serious. You pray about it. When they come to my door, which they don't anymore, but when they come to my door, I ask one question. If the Bible and the Book of Mormon contradict each other, which one's the authority? And always go, oh, they don't contradict. I said, okay. But if they did, which one's the authority? And they always say the Book of Mormon. I said, we're done. I, I got nothing to say. And I'm not even going to say God bless you or anything. I'm going to pray for your salvation. God will open your eyes. But the point is, if they want to get their book out, you can get any book out you want and you can start refuting. It's not going to work. It's another testimony. It's anathema. It's accursed. It's a false gospel. And we need not to sit around and act like it's okay to preach anything other than the cross of Christ. Jesus Christ, Him crucified and risen from the dead. And you know what else? Uh, Again, shooting straight. I know you'll be shocked. But let me just say this, too. 
we need to be careful that we do not think it's okay to take the cross out of the message. And there's too many churches today that don't want to talk about the cross or talk about sin because they're afraid that you'll be offended and you might not come back to church on Sunday. You know what? That's anathema. You know why? Because it's taking the cross of Christ out of the gospel and there's no gospel left. Now it's a feel-good message. You're wonderful. Go and be warm and be filled and just keep living your life. No, we're sinners in desperate need of a Savior. And that's why Jesus came. Paul wasn't too worried about whether or not he offended the false teachers or their followers because eternity was hanging in the balance. These were people who he planted the church there. He wanted to see them saved. And note the major difference between a true believer who may disagree with our approach to ministry or a secondary issue. I want to make a real point, clear point. Not everybody who maybe is more into works than we are is anathema. Amen? They may be confused, but they believe in the gospel. And that's what they believe. They're born again. Amen? But it's when they start adding to the gospel as the source of salvation, that's when it's anathema. Amen? When they start saying, you must do this also or you cannot be saved. One who preaches another gospel adds essentials are not Christians but accursed. They lead others away from God. So in review, Paul addressed their false accusations. He pointed them to the cross as the true source of grace. He vehemently attacked the false teachers of another gospel. And now as we continue in the coming weeks, may we come to a greater understanding of the gospel of grace. My prayer would be that every one of us would understand the grace of God and experience it in our daily lives. Amen? Now walk around condemned. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? We're convicted over our sin. That's a good thing. Because that drives us to repentance. But we don't walk around in con- condemnation over what God has already forgiven us for. And too sadly, I just see too much of that in the church today. May we walk in Christian liberty, not burdened by legalism, nor justifying our sin in license. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. And Lord, I do pray that, Father, we, each one of us would experience Your grace in a deeper way. That, Lord, that when we look at those around us who don't know You, that we would not look at the outward appearance, but, Lord, we'd look on the heart. Lord, that we would reach out to people in love. That we would not judge others by the way they dress or the car they drive or the struggles they may be having in their life, but, Lord, that we would see them through Your eyes and love them. Supernaturally, Lord. Father, I also pray that for each person here, that we would experience Your grace that we would not walk around in condemnation, but, Lord, that we would know that He who the Son sets free is free indeed. And, Lord, that as You poured out Your grace upon us, that it would produce a walk of obedience. It would produce hearts of love and mercy and forgiveness towards others. That we would be a reflection of You. And then, Lord, I just pray as we get ready to go through the rest of this book over the coming weeks, Father, again, may it be something that just sharpens our hearts, quickens our hearts, to the truth of your, again, glorious character. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's stand and close the worship song.